Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. wonder if you have a story of quitting something in your life. Uh, the last few years of COVID have been the great resignation. I don't know if you've heard that terminology, but the idea that um, people have quit their jobs as they've reevaluated what they want to do with their lives and how they want to spend their time, wanting a bit more flexibility or a sense of purpose that they didn't have in the work that they were doing before. And there are some reasons that we can quit things that are really good reasons. We, we need to move on from whatever it is or we need to stop doing something. And then there are other things that we quit because they're just a little too hard. I've quit a few things in my time. Uh, when I was a high schooler, I was a cricketer. Started playing cricket in year seven. I played a little bit in primary school, but was playing in year seven and year eight and year nine. And I was actually not too bad at it. But I hated the fact that for four to five hours on a Saturday, I was committed to sport, playing cricket. And so I decided that I needed to change sport, and um, I wanted to pick the shortest sport available. And so I tried out for the water polo team. I went from like four and a half hours to 28 minutes. And uh, I was more exhausted in 28 minutes of playing water polo than I was in four and a half hours of playing cricket. And I actually really enjoyed it as well. But the reason that I started to make that move was because I just said, I don't want to be giving up that much time. It's too hard. I've got better things to do. Uh, Ali doesn't like it too much because I'm pretty optimistic about the things that we'll do and how we'll be able to kind of carry on things. And so I said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We, we, um, when we had Jasper, um, a friend of ours who's a great journaler and likes to kind of note everything going on in her world, gave us this book called The One-Line-A-Day Journal. And the idea is that every day you just write one line about something that you've done. And straight away, Ali was like, we're never going to do that. And I was like, no, no, come on, we'll do this. It'll be great. It'll be so good to have a record because it goes and every year you kind of add to it a next thing. So you get five years' worth of entries on the same day, and you get to kind of see what God's been doing and see how things have changed and see how things have grown. And I was just adamant that we'd have everything that we needed to be able to do it. About four days later, it was sitting on the shelf, and it never got touched again. And I didn't feel any guilt about that, but Ali did feel guilty about it. Which is pretty rude. Almost all of us know the experience of quitting something, or at least of wanting to quit something. Maybe you quit a job or a New Year's resolution. Hopefully not one you just started last week. Maybe you quit a relationship. And maybe as you think about quitting, the thing that comes to mind isn't a moment when you quit something, but the crushing moment when somebody quit on you. A parent, a business partner, a friend. We're talking about quitting today because we're spending this time in January, as you know, looking at four questions Jesus asked in the Gospel of John. He asked over 300 questions, and I said last week that you learn a lot about a person from the answers that they give, but you learn even more about a person from the questions that they ask. 
And so we're hoping to explore and understand and discover what these questions teach us about Jesus, what they teach us about following him. And today's passage, John chapter 6, contains two big related questions. Verse 61, does this offend you? And verse 67, do you also wish to go away? Or to put it more colloquially, do you want to quit? I say they're related because it's the offensiveness of Jesus' teaching that causes some of the people who've been following him to leave. You see that, verse 66? Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Note that, won't you? Disciples. People who were followers or considered themselves followers of Jesus. They go back to their towns, back to their villages, back to their fishing boats or their farms. You can imagine the conversation, can't you, around the small towns of Galilee? Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Not anymore. Didn't you go off following that Rabbi Jesus? Yeah, I did. But I'm done with that now. Seeing people walk away from following Jesus is one of the most difficult and disappointing parts of being a pastor. I've been in this long enough now, not just here, but in other churches and organizations I've served in, to see people I've discipled, people I grew up with, people I served with, people I went on mission with, giving up their faith. And people quit following Jesus for different reasons, including it's important to say things that have less to do with Jesus and more to do with the church, Jesus' people. And when people walk away from Christianity, one of the reasons that they do is because of the painful or difficult experiences that they've had within the church. And when that happens, it's a horrible thing. But even if that dynamic is involved, very often the reason people quit following Jesus is because of what Jesus says and what Jesus demands. And we find that difficult to accept. Maybe you know people for whom this is the case. Maybe you've seen it in your siblings or your children or friends you went through high school or university with. Maybe you've been tempted to do it yourself. Jesus asked the question of the 12 Do you wish also to go away? Do you want to leave too? And as we sit here this morning under his word, he also asks it of us. And so we're going to explore that topic this morning under three headings. Number one, what we want. Number two, what Jesus wants. And number three, why we quit. What we want, what Jesus wants, and why we quit. We picked up the story uh, halfway through an interaction Jesus was having with a crowd, and so we're just going to go back and make some sense of that. Back in verse 25, it helps this morning if you've got a Bible with you, either on your phone or a hard copy in front of you. Verse 25, we read, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, even here, we're parachuting into a narrative that goes right back to the beginning of chapter 6. See, a crowd have followed Jesus across the lake in boats 
to the other side to a town called Capernaum. And they've done this because the day before they'd had an experience of eating bread with Jesus. Do you know the story? It's usually called the feeding of the 5,000 in your Bibles. And this crowd had been with Jesus on the mountainside when he'd taken five barley loaves and two small fish and he'd given thanks and broken them and fed the whole lot of them with extra to spare. And then he just disappears. And the crowd are looking for him and they realize that the boat is gone and his disciples are gone and that he's gone and so they figure he's gone across the sea. They go across there and they find him But Jesus knows what they really want. And so verse 26, Jesus answers them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Like kids swarming in the playground around the student with a large lunch order, the crowd want Jesus to provide another food distribution miracle. It's often how it goes, isn't it? At some point in our lives, you had an experience where Jesus fills you. You have an experience of his love and his goodness and of the community of his people, and it leaves you wanting more. Maybe he answered your prayers or was very present to you in a moment of difficulty. And so because you had this experience of being filled up by him, of having your need met by him, You keep going back for more. And Jesus knows that while this is well and good, you will not last with him unless you grasp what he has truly come to do. That's why it says, verse 27, jumping down a few verses, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, the crowd doesn't quite get it yet, and so they say to him, verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heven to eat. Sylvia's alluded to this already, he pointed it out to us, but let's go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus, to just get our bearings here. This manna in the wilderness was Uh, a moment when Moses is leading his people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're in the desert and they grumble before the Lord, we're going to die out here. And so God commands Moses to strike a rock with a stick to produce water and he tells them that he will provide them with food to eat. Quail, small birds, and also this bread called manna, which would be found on the ground like dew every morning. And the point is that this crowd sees what Jesus has done with the feeding of the 5,000 and they know their Old Testament story about the manna in the wilderness and they think to themselves, hang on a second. This is the one we've been waiting for. If you don't believe me, look back at verse 14. When the people saw this, the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that prophet was back in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses had said to the people that the Lord God would one day raise another prophet like Moses 
a second Moses to lead his people. And so here is this crowd and they're thinking, here's a guy who can miraculously feed huge crowds of people with bread. Here's a guy who can cross the sea miraculously. We didn't read it, but the little section just before this, Jesus walks on water across the sea. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that Moses parts the Red Sea so that Israel can go through. And all that makes them think, this Jesus, he could be the prophet who will lead us out of our oppression, under the hands of the Roman Empire, just as Moses led the people out of oppression under the hands of the Egyptians. See, the people in Jesus' day were under the boot of Rome. And they'd been praying and expecting and hoping, God, please bring us a deliverer who will rescue us, who will free us. That's what they want. And the question is, what do you want? Because the truth is, all of us want something from Jesus. Last week, we looked at the question more generally of what do you want as we start a new year and what place is God going to have in your scheme? But this week, we're asking more specifically, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want him to do for you? Maybe there's something in your life that you just want him to bless a new business venture, a relationship, a not-for-profit you're helping to start, and you're like, please, Jesus, this is just so important to me. Maybe you want Jesus to fix something. You made a mess of something, and it's causing all kinds of problems, and you just want Jesus to bring restoration and healing Maybe you want Jesus to fix your marriage or your kids. Maybe you want Jesus to provide something for you or you want Jesus to not embarrass you in front of your family or your colleagues. What are you hoping Jesus will do for you? And what are you going to do if he doesn't? That's such an important question to have an answer for. Because so often it's this space between our expectations and the reality, what we want from Jesus and then what we receive that causes people to walk away from faith. Do you get that? What are you going to do if Jesus doesn't give you what you want? And you might be thinking, I just don't believe that Jesus would do that. And the problem is, that's exactly what he does to the crowd. Verse 15, before our section, but the end of the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They want to make him king. And he disappears. That's why they've come to find him the next day because he's refused to be what they want and they, he refused to be what they want because it's not what he wants. And so point two, what Jesus wants, let's pick up where we started in our reading, verse 48. 
Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. You see the point? He's saying, your ancestors, they got what they wanted. They were hungry. And so they got manna to fill their stomachs. But here's the reality check. They still died. It didn't fix a problem that runs far deeper than their hunger. And Jesus says, I've come to deal not with your hunger problem, but with your death problem. Verse 49, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Sorry, verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what Jesus says here really doesn't go down well with the crowd. This is where he really starts to lose them. He's gathered 5,000 in a single day, and now he's about to turn a whole lot of them away. Verse 50, the Jews... uh, 52, sorry, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, it's not enough that he's already criticized them for only being concerned with their physical needs. He's now saying, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. My flesh is the bread that I'll give. And as Angus pointed out before, as if the crowd needs anything else to tip them over the edge... It comes in verse 53, Jesus says to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. The Jews in the Old Testament would not consume the blood of an animal. They had kosher ways of slaughtering animals for food so that the blood had completely drained from them. And here's Jesus saying, you need to eat my flesh. And with that, you need to drink my blood. What on earth can he mean? He means that he will need to sacrifice his life in order to satiate the deep spiritual hunger that you and I have, the deep spiritual need. It will be at the cost of his flesh and blood and the only way to receive The benefits that he offers is to take his death in our place to heart, to consume him, not literally, but spiritually, so that his flesh and blood become the spiritual food and drink that nourishes our souls. See, what Jesus wants is to meet our spiritual Need. He wants to give us life, life that is eternal, not just eternal in the sense that it will go on forever, but eternal in the sense that it's life characterized by heaven. What he wants is to not just treat our symptoms, but to treat our disease. Not just to fix the superficial problems, but to fix the issue as it gets down on the inside to our hearts. He says to the crowd, 
You want me to come and deal with your problem of Rome, but what I want to deal with is a problem that's so much bigger. I want to deal with the problem of your slavery to sin, the way we turn away from God and seek to live life on our own terms, and I want to deal with your slavery to death. Because just as your ancestors ate bread in the wilderness and they died, so you, without me, will die. And he says, unless I deal with that problem, unless I meet this need, you'll never be free to live the life that God made for you. And that's why you and I, we need to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. And so let's bring this to our third point this morning, why we quit. See, Jesus has been saying this crazy stuff about his flesh being true food and his blood being true drink. And so how does the crowd respond? Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? That word for difficult is the Greek word skleros, and it doesn't mean hard to understand, but rather hard to stomach. Hard to accept. Which raises the question about what it is that Jesus says that we find difficult and how we respond to that. Because I can think of all sorts of difficult things that Jesus says. I can think, for example, of Jesus when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in our culture, that claim that Jesus has an exclusive access to the Father and can bring us as the exclusive way to God sounds offensive. How can anyone claim to be the only way to God? Surely there are many ways, maybe even that each person has to find their own way. Or I can think of Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies or forgiving people who have wronged us and not keeping score. That's pretty difficult, isn't it? Or I can think about Jesus' teaching on marriage and singleness and sexuality, which goes back to God's design for human sexuality in the Garden of Eden and which can feel so out of step in a context like ours. Or maybe what Jesus says about money and generosity, which we feel uneasy reading because it's, it's just so countercultural in our affluent, self-made society. And one of the things you need to hear is that it's okay to wrestle with what Jesus says. It's okay to wrestle with the difficulty of his teaching about these and other things. If you find yourself struggling with what Jesus says, a sermon is probably not the best place to work that through. But we'd love to find ways to help you work that through, to figure it out, either in a gospel community or in a one-on-one conversation over coffee. The church is supposed to be the kind of community where we help each other process on our doubts and our objections and our fears and move forward together in humility and love. Here's another difficult thing Jesus says. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. 
That's what caused many of the disciples, these would-be followers, to abandon Jesus. It's what causes offence to so many people today. The claim Jesus makes that you're not okay just as you are. We're desperately sick and in need of a cure. We cannot, we will not make it on our own. We need the bread that comes down from heaven. And unless we go all in with Jesus, and unless we embrace him on his terms, we remain enslaved to sin and death, which is what makes Peter's answer so surprising when Jesus turns at the end of this passage to the 12 and he says, do you also wish to go away? Do you want to quit too? How would you answer? This is what Peter says, verse 68. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's not that Peter has all the answers. It's not that he's not offended and understands perfectly. I just imagine that the disciples are hearing Jesus talking to the crowds about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And at least a few of the 12 are like, Jesus, uh -uh, this is not winning you any friends here. Come on, just like walk it back a few steps. But Peter and the twelve also know Jesus. Notice that they say, to whom shall we go? They know he can be trusted. They know that he has the words of eternal life. And so they know that there is nowhere better to be than in the presence of his secure love. At the end of the day, one of the biggest temptations to quit the Christian life or not to embrace it at all in the first place is that the cost of it seems too great and the benefit too small. But what Jesus, what Peter knows, sorry, is that what Jesus offers is worth infinitely more. To whom can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the bread and the wine, the flesh and the blood, the one in whom we feed spiritually, who sustains and nourishes us. And so what do you want from Jesus? There may be all kinds of things that you would like him to do, all kinds of prayers that you would like him to answer, and it's Okay and good to pray those things, but underneath them all, do you want him to be your rescuer? Do you want him to be the one who saves you from death? Are you prepared to take him on his terms and let him show you what he wants is really what you need? Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult teaching. And for some of us here this morning, we might be 
feeling the rub of it. We might be wrestling with you. Maybe even some of us who have called ourselves Christians for a long time. And so we ask, would you meet us wherever we are, whatever our question is, our fear, our longing, our hope? Would you show us Jesus, the one who came down from heaven to sacrifice himself that he might meet our deepest need? And would you strengthen us to be the kind of people who feast on him, who let him set the agenda of our lives, who make him central to everything that we do? Because we know that he alone has the words of eternal life. He alone knows the way. We pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing together about the joy and the help and comfort and assurance it is to be known by Jesus and to be able to call him ours as well. So please stand.